Hello and welcome to this month's BJA Education Podcast. Today I'm talking with Professor Duncan Hamilton, who is a consultant in anaesthesia and acute pain at South Tees Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust and visiting professor at the University of Sunderland School of Medicine. He's written an Essential Notes article for BJA Education with Dr. Amit Power, also a consultant anaesthetist, lead for regional anaesthesia at Geyser St. Thomas's, and an honorary senior lecturer at King's College London. The article is called Anaesthesia for Awake Breast Surgery, and it covers the key considerations for performing this type of anaesthesia for breast surgery, but also many of the points raised would transfer to other types of awake surgery. So welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. When I first read your article, the patients that come to mind when I think of all the breast cancer cases I've been involved with um, are young patients who are otherwise generally quite fit, or may, or may, may or may not have had chemotherapy recently and have been for a very emotionally challenging period leading up to their operation date. So these weren't the kind of patients I would have expected to suit awake surgery. But as I read on, it becomes clear that the patient selection is a key part of successful awake breast surgery. Would you please describe the indications and the general approach to raising this as an option for the anaesthetic? You're right that breast cancer surgery can be a very emotional experience for patients. The patients are often young, frightened about the operation, frightened about the future and understandably anxious. But breast cancer affects women and sometimes men of all ages. Often patients have other comorbidities that need to be taken into account when planning their anaesthetic management. Before discussing the specific indications for awake breast surgery, it's worth remembering that for many patients, the idea of having any kind of surgery while awake may be terrifying. However, there are situations where awake breast surgery is an appropriate choice, and we've listed the indications in the article. The largest group of patients I come across in my practice are those considered high risk or unsuitable for general anaesthesia, mainly because of advanced, irreversible or uncontrolled pathology. And this is typically, but not exclusively, cardiorespiratory disease. There are those with a difficult airway or an impossible airway where regional anaesthesia is used to avoid airway manipulation and these can be particularly challenging patients. Frailty of any cause and physiological circumstances such as pregnancy. There are some women who during pregnancy are keen to avoid general anaesthesia. It may seem paradoxical but some patients have a fear of general anaesthesia and this is another group where regional anaesthesia can be useful. And there is some weak evidence that opioid drugs and volatile anaesthetics are associated with adverse oncological outcomes. This is controversial, but it's something to consider. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, And as you mentioned, one of the possible indications for awake surgery is the difficult or potentially impossible airway. Presumably, these patients would not be appropriate to have an emergency conversion to a general anaesthetic if the regional anaesthetic fails. Um, So how does this affect your approach to the perioperative management and discussions with the patients? It is quite common for patients undergoing awake breast surgery to be not suitable for for conversion to general anaesthesia. And that's why it's so important to properly prepare these patients for awake surgery. Typically, I'll see a patient in the clinic several weeks prior to their operation At this meeting, I have a long discussion with the patient and often their relatives to explain exactly what's involved in awake breast surgery and what the risks are. It's a good opportunity to answer all the questions they have in detail and 
it's an opportunity to reassure them and allay their fears. The patients then come to the operating theatre well prepared, and I think this is very important. So for our listeners, could you possibly give a brief description of the nerve supply to the breast and the surrounding structures that, that may be operated on, and then how these nerves might be blocked? The breast and axilla have a relatively complex innovation, and it's necessary to understand this in, to, in order to provide reason anesthesia. The chest wall receives segmental innovation from the spinal nerves. The anterolateral chest wall is innervated predominantly from intercostal nerves two to six via the lateral cutaneous branches, with a much smaller supply from the anterior cutaneous branches to the parasternal area. In addition, the thoracic wall receives contributions from the cervical plexus via the supraclavicular nerves and from the brachial plexus, notably the medial and lateral pectoral nerves the long thoracic nerve, the thoracodorsal nerve. And most of these branches are deemed to be pure motor nerves, but it's likely that some of them do carry nociceptive information. The intercostal brachial nerve supplies sensation to the axilla, and so it's important to include this nerve in the block when the axilla is being operated on. In summary, the nerve supply to the breast is quite complicated, And there's a diagram in the article that summarises this. So although the article isn't predominantly about the block techniques, and we do have other articles in the journal that readers might uh, like to refresh their um, knowledge on, what are your preferred techniques for most of these operations? And when would you be concerned that the surgery might not be well covered by a particular block? Well, my go-to block for this type of surgery is strategically placed ultrasound-guided paravertebral blocks at two or three levels usually. The paravertebral blocks are very effective and often sufficient for the whole operation. And the level of complexity is determined largely by the body habitus of the patient. Sometimes there will be areas that are not adequately covered, typically and predictably uh, because we know the territory supplied by the various nerves. Additional supplementation may be required in the infraclavicular area or close to the midline. So these are areas covered by the supraclavicular nerves uh, and close to the midline. There may be some communication with nerves from the contralateral side. So there are various options for blocking these additional areas. A cervical plexus block would block these supraclavicular components. Various fascial plane blocks such as interpectoral um, or local infiltration by surgeons are other options. In addition, carefully titrated intravenous doses of strong analgesics may be appropriate. And even the frailest of patients can usually tolerate small doses. And in covering this relatively large area with multiple paravertebral blocks, how common is it to approach a maximum uh, safe local anaesthetic dose? It's certainly not uncommon to be approaching it. Um, and, and that's one of the uh, one of the issues that, that we face. So we calculate the patient's mean body mass and base the local anaesthetic dose on that, always trying to leave some leeway to allow the surgeons to have some local anaesthetic on their trolley to use if if they do encounter an area that's not well covered. We always warn the patients that should the block be inadequate for surgery, then their operation will be postponed um, and they'll be brought back another day if the blocks are ineffective. We've never had to do that yet, but but we always tell the patients it's a possibility. 
because we're working so close to the maximum safe dose in some cases. Um, so how do you like to test your block before the surgery begins? And do you find that this is quite a reliable indicator that patients can tolerate the surgery? Testing the block rigorously is really important in this type of surgery. And, and it is usually a very good indicator that um, the block's going to be effective. There are a few steps to making sure that the block's effective. First of all, I always ask the surgeons to, to mark on the patient's chest um, and axilla anywhere that they're planning to make an incision prior to doing the blocks. This is really helpful because it, it helps, helps me to focus the blocks um, very much towards the, the areas of surgery. Once the blocks have been placed and time's been allowed for the local anaesthetic to take effect, I first of all do cutaneous sensory mapping with a cold stimulus. Once I'm satisfied that an adequate area seems to be covered, I then use a painful stimulus and I use an artery clip for this. And it's necessary to give a proper painful stimulus in the area of surgery to, to make sure that the block's effective. Once I'm satisfied that the block is effective and the patient's transferred into the operating room, prepped and draped and positioned carefully, I always ask the surgeon to do a final check. And usually um, we, have, we have a pre-agreed signal. He'll usually nod at me. And then I'll watch the patient and watch the monitors and uh, observe the surgeon giving a stimulus, usually with a tooth forcep. And if there's no response to any of that, then uh, we proceed with surgery. Thank you for that. Do you routinely sedate these patients? You've mentioned earlier about, um, you mentioned earlier that you're sometimes sedating. So is it routine for you to sedate these patients for surgery? Well, it, it's done on a case by case basis, but even the most stoic and well-prepared of patients often do benefit from, from judicious use of sedation. And yes, you're right. I, I said um, earlier that even the frailest of patients can usually tolerate small doses of sedatives and strong analgesics. And I think that, um, I think it is useful. I always maintain verbal contacts and bearing in mind that it is called awake breast surgery. The patients are, are awake. The term awake surgery is often used for patients that are quite deeply sedated with, for example, propofol infusions and so on. That's not the case here. And I think sedation is important just to take away a little bit of anxiety it is really helpful and um, but there are there are occasional patients that that do very well without any additional sedation but they are probably a minority yeah i suppose it depends on how determined they are to be awake and and their uh, reasoning for having the awake like the ones you mentioned who are terrified of a general anesthetic probably well driven yeah, to stay awake you're right some some patients are remarkably composed and They've had it all explained. They know what to expect and they, they are happy to just get on with it. So, like I said, it's a case-by-case -case basis. But it's really important in, in patients that are anxious to, to do what we can to alleviate that anxiety. And that could also include um, other things like listening to music, um, watching uh, videos, Although that's a bit challenging because it, it's difficult to get the screen in a position where where it's not in the way and, and they can actually focus their eyesight on it. But um, we, we do all of those things. So um, 
How do you manage these patients after surgery? How long do they sort of tend to stay inpatient and what kind of analgesia do they usually need? There's a few questions in there. Um, the, the duration of hospital stay is, is generally determined by surgical rather than anaesthetic factors. So the presence of drains and um, any any surgical needs generally determine. We, we, I don't think we've sent any of these patients home on the same day yet, but we certainly sent them home the morning after the operation. Multimodal analgesia is the cornerstone of effective post-operative pain management in these patients. Regular oral analgesia with paracetamol and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs where there's no contraindication, and codeine, PRN. They're the cornerstone of um, post-operative analgesia and often all that's required. We, we also will give PRN, oral morphine solution, if it's required. A lot of the patients don't seem to need it, which is good. Um, there will be some variation in in pain management, depending on the patients or the comorbidities. Patients with chronic pain syndromes often do require additional analgesia. And in some patients where, where we're expecting pain management to be a problem, we may implant a nerve block catheter for post-operative pain relief. And we could always put one in as well post-operatively if pain management becomes a problem, but, but we rarely need to. And uh, what kind of feedback do you get from patients about the whole experience? Yeah, well, I'm pleased to report that the, the feedback um, has has been extremely good and very encouraging. And we, we've had quite a few patients who've just been very, very happy to have got their operation done. Often these patients have been told they can't have an anaesthetic, and so they're really motivated to come and have this operation done away when they find out this is an option. And those patients have been so happy that they've got their operation done. Um, they've given us really good feedback. But, um, yeah, so far, very positive. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. Um, I hope this will give our listeners an insight into how this type of surgery and anaesthetic can take place and work well. Yeah, and I'll look forward to speaking to you soon, Professor Hamilton. Thank you.